actually one of the most moving civic sites I've seen in India is literally tens of thousands of people reading the preamble of the constitution together. Muslims carrying the national flag explicitly. So I think there is a little bit of that pushback that perhaps enough is enough. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. In 2004, George W. Bush won re-election against John Kerry to the surprise of a lot of good, well-thinking liberals like the sort of people who tend to listen to this podcast, not to stereotype me and all of you. And in trying to understand how this could have happened, one theory ended up becoming very influential. According to one poll taken before the election, more Americans thought that they would enjoy getting a beer with George W. Bush than with John Kerry. So the beer test, a kind of version of a general likability test, became very influential. People will vote for the candidate who they want to have a beer with. Now, I've come to think over the last months that this gets things exactly backward. Actually, what voters think about is not, do I want to get a beer with a candidate? It's would the candidate want to get a beer with me? Do they like me and people like me? Would they feel comfortable in my home? Would they think I'm a good person if I honestly talk to them about how I see the world? Now, you can see many examples of politicians failing that test in ways that really hurt them. In Massachusetts, Martha Coakley ran for the U.S. Senate seat of the then late Ted Kennedy and was beaten by Scott Brown, in part because when she was accused of not campaigning hard enough, she said, what do you want me to do? Stand outside Fenway Park in the cold, shaking hands? She clearly thought that the kind of people who go and see the Red Sox are not the kinds of people she really feels that comfortable with. Well, that didn't go down too well in Massachusetts. Something similar happened when Gordon Brown got into a debate with a voter a few weeks before his bid at re-election in 2010 and was very polite to the lady in front of her face. And as soon as he drove away, caught on a microphone he was still wearing, he said, well, that was a bigoted lady. He seemed to look down on a lot of his voters. Now, I think there's something rational to that. Why should you care about whether you're going to get to have a beer with a president? He's not going to invite you to the White House anyway. But it makes sense to care about whether he would or she would like you because that comes down to whether or not you can trust them to be a reliable agent for you, whether you can trust them to actually keep standing up for your interests once they are in office. It's not a perfect test of that, but it is a plausible heuristic. Now, I think once you think about things in this way, it helps to explain Joe Biden's lead in the current Democratic primary. One of the key features of him as a person and as a candidate has always been, as we know from books uh, describing his 1988 campaign up to recent profiles, that he really loves connecting with people. He really loves talking to people. He would be happy to talk to you. He would be happy to talk to your spouse who might vote for Republicans. He would even be happy to talk to your crazy uncle who spouts conspiracy theories. He just is somebody who 
doesn't judge people who engages with him. And I think that comes through and is a more popular political characteristic than we often tend to recognize. So don't talk about likability, talk about liked ability. Don't talk about the beer test in terms of whether you want to have a beer with a candidate. Talk about it in terms of whether a candidate wants to have a beer with you. Well, uh, today I have a very, very special conversation with you. It is with Pratap Mehta, you know, really one of the foremost Indian intellectuals and activists. He's the founder of the Center for Political Reform, uh, the most important think tank in the country. He is one of the founders and was the first vice chancellor of Ashoka University, a new, very influential, excellent private university outside of Delhi, where he is still a professor. And he's also the author of an important book on Indian democracy called The Burden of Democracy. This is one of the longer conversations I have on the podcast. It may be the longest conversation in the history of this podcast, perhaps. But that's because we're trying to understand the threat that Narendra Modi poses to contemporary Indian democracy, certainly to the liberal element of it, perhaps to the democratic element itself, but really rooting it in an understanding of the founding of India, its dominant political tradition for the last 50 years, why it is that that tradition has started to recede, setting the stage for the rise of Hindu nationalism in the form of Modi. I promise you, whether you know India very well, or whether you know very, very little about India, you will have a much richer understanding of a country and the very important challenges the biggest democracy in the world currently faces after this conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Pratap. Thank you very much for having me. Look forward to learning from you. Well, I look forward to learning from you. I've been keen to have you on this podcast since the very beginning because you have great insights about democracy everywhere in the world. But of course, your participation could not be more timely because of what's been going on in India in the last months, particularly, but really in the last years since Narendra Modi took office. So let's start there. What is the Modi government doing to change sort of the constitution of India, to change what the Indian nation is, if that makes sense? That's a good question. I think I would answer that question in three different ways. One, I think he's now explicitly changing the principles I think, behind the Indian constitution. As you know, all constitutions are often compromises, right, at the time of their founding. But the Indian constitution was, I think, quite clear in setting out the direction in which it wanted the country to go. And the one and the most important element of that direction was that citizenship should not be tied to religion or ethnicity. And I think the Citizenship Amendment Act that the Modi government has brought in, for the first time since independence, there is a legislative act that in the case of granting citizen status to refugees, explicitly identifies uh, a particular group of religions as being eligible and more specifically excludes one group, which is the Muslims, Given that we already have a process by which refugees can become citizens, even if there was a need to create another one or fast track a particular group to citizenship status, the fact that this act does not use religion neutral language, which any secular state would do, but explicitly sends a signal 
that Muslim refugees are not welcome here and thereby sending a larger signal about the second class status of Muslims as citizens in India. I think it's changing the very fundamental principle on which Indian constitutionalism is founded. So that's, I think, at the level of principle in some ways. Just to jump in for a moment. So my understanding here is that and you'll correct me in all the ways I'm going wrong, that there's sort of two initiatives going on at the same time, right? And the first is a change to how refugees can become citizens of India. And it's a law that might look quite humanitarian at first glance, which is to say it's saying if you are a member of certain religiously persecuted minorities in some of India's neighboring countries, then you have a fast track to become a citizen of India. So if you are a Christian or a Hindu in Bangladesh or in Pakistan, and you come to India because of religious persecution, then you can become a citizen. But the problem with it is that there are Muslim minorities in some of India's neighboring countries, and there are some denominations, for lack of a better term, within Islam, such as the Smilies in Pakistan, and they are not getting the same treatment. So, you know, it looks like a humanitarian law on the surface, but really it seems to be establishing this idea that there is a tension between being Muslim and being Indian. Yes, it it sets sets up the idea that there is a tension between being Muslim and being Indian. And I think there's a context to this, which I think your listeners, I think, need to understand, which is in the lead up to passing this legislation, the government has at many points also been talking about creating a national register of citizens, right? Mm -hmm. Which again, seems like a reasonable thing a state might want to do, which is a register of citizens. Many states have such, such registers. Right. It seems like a basic state of every state to know who's a citizen and who's not and so on. Exactly. But the context in India, I think, provides a complication to this enterprise, namely that most people, or significant number of people at least, and certainly likely above a certain age, often do not have documents that can actually prove their citizenship, right? They don't have birth certificates. Even now, something like only 70% of births are actually registered through a kind of documentary process, although that number has been going up. And the fear is the following. So let us say you were registered under this NRC and then asked to prove your citizenship, right? Hmm. Now, if you were a Hindu, you're in no danger of losing your citizenship, right? Let's say for argument's sake, you could not prove, but at least you were a Hindu. And, and it's quite common that people can't prove their citizenship precisely because there is no national list and birth certificates are, are relatively recent in some parts of India and so on, right? Exactly. And, and there's also a question of state capacity and state practices. I mean, just to give an example, the one state where this exercise has been carried out, which is Assam, which has a politics of its own, at, at the moment there are about... million people, 19 lakh, to use the Indian unit of counting. This is the one thing that always completely confuses me about India. Whenever I'm there, you know, I've come to know the country a little bit. There's many fascinating, confusing things. But when people start to talk about lakhs, I check out. Exactly right. So there's one point like who who have not been able to prove their citizenship. And of that group, actually about 60% were identified as Hindus, 40% were identified as Muslims. And the Hindus in that group will get citizenship under the new law, the Muslims won't. So that's really straightforwardly a place. Now, the irony in all of this is that 
Assam is upset with this new Citizenship Amendments Act because it actually doesn't want Bengali Hindus who came to Assam uh, to actually get citizenship either. Or if they are to get citizenship, it wants to relocate them out of Assam because it thinks migration of Bengalis into Assam along with whether they are Hindu or Muslim, altered the local demography of, of Assam. And therefore, this granting of citizenship to Bengali Hindus who have not been able to prove their citizenship actually violates the terms of the Assam Accord. So, you know, you can see how complicated the process is going to be both of identification. Then what do you do? in cases where you have identified or you, or people have failed to prove their citizenship. And in those circumstances, will you be at a disadvantage if you are Hindu, possibly even if you're a Christian or a Parsi, but certainly be at a disadvantage if you're a Muslim, right? So it's the alignment of the citizen new citizenship act, which grants a fast-track status to ref refugees based on religion, with a larger enterprise, and the Home Minister said so repeatedly that the Citizenship Amendment Act was a prelude to the National Register of Citizens. And you can see why it was a prelude, because what it would do is, in the event that people were not able to prove that they're citizens, if they were Hindu, at least they could claim some other path to citizenship. So basically what ends up happening is that, you know, the Indian state, let's say, needs to make a list of its citizens and that's perfectly understandable. But then you have to address the legitimate fears of people who say, I actually am a legitimate citizen of this country, but I don't have a birth certificate. I face either ideologically hostile, religiously hostile local bureaucracy or just incompetent bureaucracy or just corrupt bureaucracy. How do I make sure that I don't end up getting deported? And the government's answer has been, well, look, if you're a Hindu, you'll have this law to fall back on, so you don't have to worry. But certainly if you are Muslim and if you're potentially a member of certain other minority groups, then you could actually be vulnerable to deportation, to demands for bribes, and so on and so forth. Now, I think the one even larger context we need for this is the nature of the BJP government, the ideological roots of Narendra Modi, the prime minister, and how this government is different from the Congress governments, which have dominated, not for every single moment, but for the large majority of India's history since its founding. So tell us a little bit about why it is that people are paying so much attention to what perhaps to outside ears might, might sound like a worst-case scenario of fears, why it is not far-fetched, but rather relatively obvious in that context to think that the government may be trying to turn India into a Hindu nation and, and how that differs from the vision that the founders had and the vision that, for all of its real flaws, the Congress party governments usually tried to incarnate. That's a very good question. Um, the Prime Minister Narendra Modi, of course, his entire political career, he grew up and was nurtured in an organization called the Rashtriya Swam Sevang Sangh, or the RSS for short. And the RSS is an organization that has the following aims. First of all, it explicitly believes in religious majoritarianism, which is the idea that India is a Hindu country. Secondly, it believes that part of the problem with the Congress system and the BJP president Amit Shah often says things to these effect is that they created the system 
where the minorities, and specifically Muslims, had veto over lots of issues and lots of legislation. A little bit exaggerated, but that's broadly their claim, that the Congress's vote bank, its social base, rested on incorporating minorities. And one of the results of that was that the minorities came to have a preponderance say, or some, in some cases, even a veto on important legislative issues. He's very explicit about saying that one of the things that makes BJP distinct is that it actually wants to make Muslims irrelevant to the enterprise of building electoral and political coalitions. So it's a political hmm. party that largely governs with, without Muslims. In fact, Muslim representation is pretty non-existent within the party, one or two pretty ineffectual political exceptions aside. And it thinks that it can actually carve out an electoral majority in ways that do not depend at all on seeking minority votes. So this combination that political power will largely remain in the hands of Hindus and the Muslims will be made marginal to that political power, combined with a cultural understanding of India that this is the land of Hindus. This is very sort of contrary. I mean, Jawaharlal Nehru had this beautiful image of India as a kind of palimpsest onto which every civilization had left its imprint. So India mm. is, of course, the largest Hindu country. India is the second largest Muslim country. India is a very big Christian country. India is an Asian country. India is an English-speaking common law Western civilization country. So that image of India as a palimpsest, which literally, in a sense, is the crucible of all of these civilizations, the BJP explicitly wants to move away from that cultural self-understanding of India to saying India is actually constituted by Hindu civilization as it understands it. Now, Nehru never actually denied the fact, of course, this is a predominantly Hindu country, of course, it's inflected by a Hindu ethos. But the idea that that self-understanding has to exclude the imprint of all of these civilizations that have found a home in India in a very deep sense, um, I think that's a very big cultural shift in India's uh, understanding of its nationhood. So, you know, I think that's what's striking to me, right? That India's founding is in part as a contrast to the founding of Pakistan, which understands itself explicitly as a Muslim nation and has also included a number of religious minorities within it, but they were always much more marginal to the national life because it was an avowedly and a proudly Muslim nation. In the case of India, uh, the founding idea was that, yes, it was obviously inflected by Hindu culture, as you're saying, but it was a circular nation. It was a nation which was not defined by one religion or another. And the task of politics was always to keep what I understand was called sort of communitarianism or communitarian tensions sort of down and so far as possible. Now, that didn't always succeed in Indian history. And there was obviously repeated moments of terrible clashes and pogroms and so on. But it has succeeded to a much larger extent than one might have imagined back in 1948. And so I guess to me, you know, I come at this as somebody who is studying populism, obviously, at the moment. And there's two sort of questions I have here, right? The first is, sometimes I start my talks by saying, you know, the basic thing I learned about democracy is that there are rich dictatorships which might continue to be stable. There are poor countries which don't have a deep democratic history in which no political scientist would be surprised if democracy struggles. So Kenya at the moment is one of those examples. 
And then there's these rich and affluent countries, which we thought were going to be stable, and now suddenly they don't seem to be stable. When you look at a country like Hungary, or perhaps even a country like the United States. Now, that makes the puzzle about India not so much that its democracy might now be in trouble, which is something that political scientists would have easily predicted in 1948. It's that its democracy wasn't in trouble for so long, but for so long, despite moments in the 1970s, for example, where there was real challenges to it, but for so long, democracy in India seemed to be stable up to the point that 60 years in, we started to take it for granted in certain ways. So why do you think the Indian experiment worked for so long? And why has it then stopped working? I think one has to be a little bit careful here about terminology because I think, you know, different people hear different things when they hear the word democracy. I think most commonly it's associated with electoral democracy, right? The idea that legitimacy is created through elections and those elections are free, fair and institutionalized. And, you know, to that extent, I think even now it's actually quite important to Narendra Modi's self-image that he presents himself as an electorally popular leader. I think one has to be slightly careful about just so that not to give the misleading impression that Modi has come to power or is a kind of dictator in the kind of conventional Latin American sense comes to power with aid of the military or something, right? I think what we are talking about in some, is in some sense is the character of the democracy where you might say the democracy works against the liberal ethos or electoral legitimation in this case, produces a power structure that works against the liberal ethos of the constitution. So the question is, why did this work for so long? I think that gives a couple of structural reasons and a couple of very conjunctural political reasons. So the structural reason, which I think is an interesting one in the case of India, is that one of the interesting strengths that India had is actually a bewildering variety of diversity, right? Mm. So a diversity along very many axes, 17, 18 major languages, you know, thousands of different caste groups. And the conventional wisdom about India always, that why India will always remain centrist, was the idea that none of these position groups is really in the position to totally dominate the country and be able to impose its will upon the rest, right? That there's enough cross-cutting cleavages yeah. that will, by their very nature, act as a kind of resistance to any project of homogenization. So in a way, what James Madison talked about in Federalist Number 10, which is that the way to deal with factions in a big republic is to multiply them and to have as many as possible you know, Madison had to try and design a constitutional structure to create those factions in a way, whereas India came naturally with them. It came naturally with them. And I, and I think the one difference with Madisonian factions, because typically in right democratic theory, you think of sort of ethnic identities and social identities as in some senses being potentially anti-modern forces or primordial forces, right? And individually, they might be, but a collection of a large number of them can nevertheless produce a power-sharing structure, forms of checks and balances, one group against the other, that actually produces an equilibrium where the sensible thing to do is to try and create governing practices that actually build conciliation and consensus across these different groups. Hmm. And this was very much reflected in the structure of the Congress Party. I mean, I think Gandhi's great genius, uh, I mean, we think of him as, you know, one of the great proponents of nonviolent satyagraha, 
But one of his great organizational geniuses was to actually organize the Congress party in the way in which it becomes a big tent umbrella political party that can take all of these different groups and carry out the task of, in a sense, negotiation back and forth, compromises, modus vivendis in some senses between them. And which is why it was always important for Congress, right? When Jinnah said, look, only I represent the Muslims. The core came the Congress wanted to contest was that the Congress party can actually represent a diversity of ethnic identities, caste groups, social groups, linguistic groups, right? And it is actually through a long period of those compromises. I mean, I think, you know, the nationalist movement, particularly from sort of 1919 onwards, right up to 1947, the building of a Congress party as a party structure that could reconciliate these different interests was actually terribly important. I mean, I think one of the reasons Pakistan did not do as well is because the Muslim League was not a political party in this sense. The third thing I think have to say, I think explicitly, I mean, people often talk of structural conditions, but the fact is ideological preferences do matter. And I think India was one of the few post-colonial states that eschewed radical revolution and communism as a kind of direction uh, to take. Radicals might argue that it was, you know, self-serving choice made by India's elites. But the fact of the matter is that in terms of their outlook, in terms of their institutional commitments, in terms of, I think, their natural instinct and ethos reared up in common law traditions, moderate constitutionalism, they also made explicit choices. And what the Congress Party managed to do successfully is marginalize both the radical right and the radical left. So these are the kind of longer term structural choices. I think the interesting conjunctural question, uh, and just to be a little bit mischievous for the aid of thinking, is actually Gandhi's assassination. And as you know, a Hindu fanatic, Nathuram Godse, assassinated Gandhi. Uh, and part of his concern was that Gandhi was creating a weak, effeminate Hindu identity. He wanted a much more muscular, masculine, assertive Hindu identity. And he also thought that Gandhi was too appeasing of Muslims. But I think it's an interesting counterfactual thought because I think one of the things that Gandhi's assassination actually did is that for a long period of Indian history, it actually delegitimized the RSS, right? Mm. With whom Nathuram Godse had had ideological elective affinity. I mean, the RSS denies that he was a member of the RSS at the time of the assassination. And so in an interesting kind of way, I think it did give Jawaharlal Nehru, I think, a lot more political space. Uh, the Congress Party was always challenged by the Hindu right, both from the outside, but also elements within the Congress Party that were actually closer to the Hindu right. But I do think Mahatma Gandhi's assassination, I think, in some senses, took the wind out of the sails of the Hindu right at that moment of independence. And I think the counterfactual is if that hadn't happened, would the Hindu right have got the license to act a lot more assertively in the 1950s than they were able to. And frankly, the rehabilitation of the Hindu right as a political force actually doesn't happen really properly until the mid-1970s when Indira Gandhi imposes the emergency. And as part of the anti-emergency movement and building a broad coalition, the Jansang, which was the forerunner of the BJP, and through the Jansang, affiliates of the RSS were actually brought on board. 
So I think we sometimes underestimate the importance of conjunctures like that, uh, mm. that as as wonderful as and conciliatory a statement as Jawar, a statesman as Jawaharlal Nehru was, as innovative as Congress party political structures were, they probably did get a lot more breathing room because of Gandhi's assassination. I see. So that's interesting. So you think that, you know, there are some underlying conditions favoring the success of Indian democracy. Uh, and we know, for example, from political science that the relationship between uh, civic conflict, at least, and what they call ethno-linguistic fractionalization is an inverse U-shape, which is to say that if you're very homogeneous, like Sweden, then you're unlikely to have deep civic conflict. If you're extremely heterogeneous, like India, you're also unlikely to have a civic conflict for the reasons you outlined, which is that there are so many different fault lines that nobody can quite hope to build a majority. And everybody ends up saying, well, we just need a set of rules that make each of us feel somewhat safe. And it's in the middle area um, where you have two or three big ethnic groups and one of them can hope to be the majority that you wind up with conflict. So that's sort of one of the underlying things. And then uh, I think it's interesting, this idea that the assassination of Mahatma Gandhi may have inculcated the country against a certain form of Hindu extremism, that that wears off. And I think that rings true in very different contexts. In Germany, with the rise of the far right 70 or so years after the Third Reich, uh, or in Spain, with the rise now of the far right Vox Party, as the memory of a Franco dictatorship is slowly starting to recede from lived memory. In the language of ethno-linguistic fractionalization or Federalist 10 or, and so on, it seems like the BJP has in a way succeeded to collapse these different distinctions. That when earlier in Indian politics, distinctions of caste, distinctions of region, distinction of language were as important as religious distinctions for many political things, at this point, the distinction between uh, Hindu and non-Hindu is the most salient. Now, obviously, there's lots of Hindus who oppose uh, the BJP and so on, but they seem to have managed to create, in a way, a country whose political divisions perhaps are less diverse than they were by making this the most salient political cleavage. Do you think that's an accurate description? And, and if so, how did they manage to do that? So I think that is an accurate description, right? Frankly, I think 15, 20 years ago, if you look at the political science and literature in India, I think people would have been surprised that a party like the BJP could achieve this kind of dominance. But I think I would attribute that to a couple of things. So one, I think, you know, and again, here's an interesting thought, right? Which is that in some ways, what the BJP has managed to do is in a sense, capitalize on the previous success of India's democracy in one specific way. So when Nehru was engaged in the project of nation building and Congress is trying to, you know, stitch together India in the face of repeated predictions by American political scientists that India is going to break up into 20 <laughs> units, the 1950s literature was kind of dominated by that. In a way, what the Congress party did manage to do successfully was actually negotiate some of those challenging differences. So, for example, language, right? Where, for the most part, India's messy compromise on language, which is not imposing a single national language or official language on the states and different provinces, creating linguistic states. What does that mean? So, a lot of Indian states, the boundaries of provinces within India, states within India, are actually constructed around lines of linguistic communities. So, Tamil Nadu is a predominantly mm. Tamil-speaking state. Kerala is a predominantly Malayalam-speaking state. So, those linguistic groups 
got a sense that for the purposes of the preservation and perpetuation of their language, they still had access to state power. Hmm. And unlike Sri Lanka, India took the choice of dealing with the plurality of languages. So although there was an aspiration to make Hindi in some ways a uniform national language, and there's some elements that still once in a while talk about it, no government in India really was ready to actually carry out that project. And thankfully so, because I think the project of homogenizing a country like India around a single language would almost certainly have produced much more civic conflict. So in some senses, the language question got more or less settled. And I think one of the interesting things about this conjuncture is, so for example, if you take a party in Tamil Nadu, the DMK, which is a party that rose out of two conjunctures. Partly it rose out of a kind of social reform movement of backward castes against elite castes. But a lot of its raison d'etre was to, in a sense, preserve Tamil identity, Tamil culture from being encroached upon by the central government or what they often used as a kind of proxy, you know, North Indian culture. Now, in a way, And the traditional wisdom was that parties like that would always oppose something like a BJP that sought to homogenize the nation. I think now the DMK has an interesting relationship with the BJP, which is the DMK is still an independent party, very dominant in Tamil Nadu. But I think it has the confidence that Hindi is not about to be imposed on Tamil Nadu. And therefore, what it does is it just enters into a pragmatic alliance with whoever happens to be in power at the center. So long as you don't cross the Rubicon, namely that Hindi will not be imposed on Tamil Nadu. So in some senses, a whole series of conflicts that had, you know, diverted politics in different ways actually came to be successfully settled, relatively successfully settled. I think language is one example. I think the second one, which I think is very interesting for the BJP, is caste. So as most of you listeners know, India is traditionally associated Indian social structure with the caste system, a hierarchical gradation of society into different almost orders of being. And and in some ways, one of the wildest and most virulently hierarchical systems, particularly the bottom end of the hierarchy that any society has known. And one of the interesting challenges was that it was always assumed that lower castes, Dalits, or who are called and ex-untouchables, for example, would be a natural source of social resistance to an ideological project of homogenizing Hinduism, in part because some of them at least associate Hinduism with creating the ideology that actually oppressed them via the caste system, in part because at least traditionally, if you look at the BJP and its forerunner, the Jansang, there was an association that this was largely an upper caste party. So the social cleavage was quite significant. And so it was almost, I mean, you know, the Rudolfs very famously argued that in some senses, caste could actually be a vehicle for modernity and democracy in India, rather than simply being antithetical to democracy and modernity. Precisely because it provides a sort of social basis for resistance against a traditionalist party gaining hegemony. Interesting. And which which would also be considered kind of conservative. Now, I think what the BGP has managed to do, I think, in the last 15, 20 years, I think is quite significant. So one of the paradoxes of modern India is that, of course, 
caste identities have in some senses become much more malleable as economic development has taken place i mean there is still incredible caste discrimination in certain geographies in india it's almost unconscionable that a modern liberal democracy should exhibit these forms of caste discrimination but there has been also now increasing sociological fluidity in caste so for example in many areas the traditional identification of caste with occupation is beginning to loosen certainly in the middle and upper middle caste levels i mean i think i think at the very bottom of the hierarchy landless agriculture labor or sewage workers i think the the identification between caste and occupation is still strong but in whole range of occupations farmers carpenters and so what that has done is it has moved caste from a hierarchical system to a identity system in some ways that people still identify with their castes but these castes may no longer be associated with many of the traditional traits and occupations that they were uh, associated with nor are they necessarily fixed in one location there's you might say a little bit more of mobility hmm. now one of the things that has been happening as a result of that is that you know the joke in india used to be that people don't cast their vote they vote their caste hmm yeah now this was a little bit of an exaggeration about indian voting behavior but broadly speaking there was something to it that you could ex ante predict by caste affiliations what their likely party affiliations were going to be and i know that this would have differed from region to region and it's it's probably way too complex to put in a few sentences but but broadly speaking what was the caste alliance or oh, let me put it this way when i think of a congress party is it something and i know that uh, comparing caste to anything else in the world always leads you astray but, but the democratic party today in the united states is often a coalition of especially social and cultural elites and the people at the bottom of a social hierarchy right so it is ethnic and religious minorities for the most disadvantaged is very poorest whites and it is everybody with a postgraduate degree in the country was there a similarity to the congress coalition in terms of the caste system that it was the sort of cultural elites of a country many of whom might have been brahmin but then also a lot of the lowest most oppressed castes or is that putting it too simply Well I think that was predominantly the character of the Congress party I think the time of independence but I think the social coalition changed in a sense very rapidly so I think one of the distinctions I think one has to make in India which is actually important to understand BJP's kind of cultural politics is that when we speak of cultural elites you can speak of two kinds of cultural elites you can speak of cultural elites as you might understand you know the anglicized english speaking indian elite which is extremely significant and extremely powerful right in in terms of kind of cultural capital it commands you can think of that as the cultural elite or actually you can think of for example a much more traditional cultural elite which is for example brahmins hmm and these two groups often overlap with each other but these are not necessarily identical in fact i think just as a little footnote i think the most interesting insights in sam huntington's justly critiqued work the clash of civilizations was a chapter in the middle which actually talked about the vernacularization of elites that in many of the post colonial democracies you will go through a similar phase where there is an initially anglicized elite i think jawaharlal nehru as a kind of symbol of that which in some senses leverages that kind of cultural capital 
but its social base is actually relatively small and relatively thin. And in part, what it faces is a backlash by another kind of cultural elite, which is much more vernacular, rooted in language, for example. And I think in North India, that's certainly the case that a lot of what the BJP capitalizes on is Hindi-speaking resentment against anglicized elites. Hmm. Mr. Modi himself uses these you know, formulations. Or you're, I'm sure when you come to Delhi, one of your favorite places to visit is Khan Market, which has all these wonderful cafes and shops. And I can't confirm or deny, but of course you're right. <laughs> you should certainly deny that you're a member of the Khan Market elite. But Mr. Modi has kind of fastened on that as a pejorative, which is Khan Market elite, meaning both anglicized and, of course, you know, solicitous of minorities in some ways, right? So I think there is that complication to the way we think of elites in India, but but it's broadly right that the Congress party under Nehru had that cultural elite, but it relied hugely on the support of minorities and Dalits in particular, you know, which were traditionally thought to be the natural constituency of the Congress party. In the 70s and 80s, that slowly began to change. And one of the reasons Congress Party struggled is because it actually lost a lot of its natural constituency. So, for example, in the state of UP, Dalits, who had been the social bedrock of the Congress Party, actually defected to form an ethnic-based party of their own, the BSP. Now, it's an interesting question why the Congress was not able to hold on to the Dalit vote. You might say that's partly because Congress was seen not to be sincere about social reform. It did not alter the power structure radically enough that even though it paid lift service to the ideology of caste inclusion, in fact, decision-making within the Congress party continued to be remain to be dominated by traditional upper caste. So for a whole variety of reasons, I think Congress actually began to lose its social base. And that's also something the BJP, in a sense, kind of capitalized on, which is it has managed to construct the Congress party as this party, an elite party, largely out of touch. And the form in which it incorporates lower castes as a form that was, you might say, inherently patronizing. But in a nutshell, I think what you're seeing in India is a process where caste political identities are becoming a lot more fluid. And one of the paradoxical effects of that is that that has weakened the natural checks and balances Hmm. that they actually provided. So to draw out the big picture from the two points you were making, right? Like one is, you know, when you go back to, so India's founding in 1947, and then let's say 10 or 20 years after that, there's still a lot of worry regionally that if you end up getting a very strong central government organized around sort of identity lines, suddenly people in Tamil Nadu might be forced to speak Hindi or their children might be taught in Hindi rather than in the local language. And that is a big fear which makes it hard for a party like the BJP to rise. And then on the caste system, it both is less permeable than it is today and it is politically more resistant to a Hindu nationalist party which would likely allow the upper caste to dominate over the others. And both of those things sort of get settled. The one gets settled because at this point, the language settlement and and in most parts of India, the regional question is sort of clear. You, you have a certain amount of autonomy and people aren't worried about that. And then on the caste side, both the sociological basis of it gets a little bit more 
more flexible. And the political alliances, in part as a result, become sort of more fluid. Now, I think in order to understand modern India, we, we need to understand sort of one more thing, which is the delegitimation of the Congress party, right? So Congress for so long is so dominant, but it sort of runs out of steam. And it runs out of steam for a whole variety of reasons, which you will explain to us. So I think there's in a sense three dimensions in which the Congress party runs out of steam. And, and, and these happen at different historical conjunctures. So the first dimension actually begins in, in a sense, the mid-80s itself. Maybe it could have even happened earlier, but Indra Gandhi was assassinated. The election after her death was conducted under exceptional circumstances. Rajiv Gandhi won an overwhelming majority. But Rajiv Gandhi's, I think, tenure is very significant in delegitimizing the Congress because he had an extraordinary majority, actually more than 400 seats in a house of 542 wow. uh, in the Lok Sabha, right? It's the single largest majority any party has ever had. And yet at the end of its tenure, the Congress party had become more deeply delegitimized as ever. Now, why did that happen? Two things happened. First, of course, has to do with caste. There was an incredible movement and agitation around demanding more reservations or affirmative action, the you know, American vocabulary, and to include more and more groups within the ambit of reservations in India. Historically, at the time of Indian's independence, Dalits had been granted reservation in government jobs, in educational institutions, in the case of Dalits, even uh, parliamentary representation. But in the 80s, there was a demand to include other backward castes, in some senses, within the ambit of reservation. And Congress party was in some senses seen as less responsive to the needs of those groups than other parties that were emerging at the time, which were largely caste-based parties. So one of the interesting features of the post-Gandhi, Rajiv Gandhi era, if you take North India, particularly, which is politically very salient, UP, the largest state, at the end of Rajiv Gandhi's tenure, you have the foundations of two caste-based parties, the Samajwadi Party, which was a pretty dominant force in UP politics, which is other backward castes based, uh, largely a Yadav party, and the BSP, which is a Dalit party. So this was the first sign that Congress is no longer able to incorporate these castes within the party fold, as it had historically done so. The second thing that happened under Rajiv Gandhi's rule, which is, I think, very significant, and that probably speaks much more to Hindu nationalism directly, is that Rajiv Gandhi, even though he may have been personally secular, and despite having a large majority in parliament, the Congress party was very unsure of its own ideological convictions around secularism. And this was manifested in a chain of events. So the first pivotal event was actually satanic verses. As you remember, uh, Salman Rushdie's satanic verses was published. There were agitations against the book. And actually, India was one of the first countries to make sure that the book was not circulated in India. And in fact, the banning of the satanic verses in some sense, it's not the first time a book had been banned in India, but it became a kind of lightning rod for thinking about, is the state actually neutral when it bans particular books that offend particular communities? And Hindu nationalists took it as a lightning rod. So one of the dangers to free speech in India is, for example, every group now claiming 
that something has been published that's offensive to them. You know, Wendy Doniger publishes a book on the Hindus and some group will file a suit saying, look, this book is offensive to us. But the paradigm was set by Rajiv Gandhi's abdication on that issue. It's also, by the way, if, if, if I'm allowed a, a slight deviation, one of the fundamental reasons for freedom of speech that if you ban the satanic verses because you are worried in a sort of well-intentioned way, perhaps, about the feelings and perhaps to some extent though, that certainly doesn't flow from the book, the safety of a very vulnerable minority within India, which is 200 million strong, but obviously a minority in the country often discriminated against in terrible ways. And you say, well, you know, actually perhaps freedom of speech doesn't really work because it affronts this minority that already suffers in many ways, so we should actually protect from by banning this book. It obviously breeds a majoritarian counter-reaction where, to some extent, understandably, Hindus then say, well, hang on a second, you know, you claim that you're neutral and that we have to put up with insults against our religion, but when you step in and protect the religion of this minority, so why shouldn't we use our majority status in order to make sure that we sort of shape the public sphere in accordance with what we want? Some 30 years after the banning of the satanic verses, that is certainly what the current uh, government is doing in a very extreme way. That's exactly right. You set up a politics of competitive mobilization. The second thing that happened in Rajiv Gandhi's tenure, which is an example of this politics of competitive mobilization, is that the Supreme Court actually passed a court judgment in the case of a woman called Shahbano who had gone to the court claiming maintenance from her husband who had divorced her. And the court not only granted her the maintenance, but actually made a call and reminded the government that one of the promises of India's constitution, which was put in the directive principles of the state policy, was that India should evolve a common civil code. Right now, different communities are governed by different personal laws, particularly mm -hmm. relating to marriage, family, and property. And one of the Hindu majoritarian complaints has been that in the 1950s, Indian parliament thought it fit to legislate on Hindu personal law to reform it. Not perfectly, albeit, I mean, there are very many elements of equality built into it, but the idea that the Indian parliament could actually act to reform Hindu law, whereas because it, this has just happened right after partition, the parliament did not think it fit to similarly reform Muslim personal law, which continued to be governed by the 1935 Sharia Act, long after many Muslim countries had actually reformed their marriage and personal law. And the symbolic sort of case in this was the institution of triple talaq, right? The practice whereby simply saying talaq, 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 or divorce, divorce, divorce three times, a Muslim man can give his wife divorce. And one of Mr. Modi's significant acts of parliament, I mean, the Supreme Court had, of course, prior to that, struck down tri triple talaq, but a significant act in parliament was to introduce legislation that makes triple talaq a criminally punishable offense. So then the Congress was seen as, quote-unquote, appeasing Muslims. And in order to then compensate, what it did was it for the first time opened the area around the disputed Ayodhya temple and actually allowed worship in that area. So this is the, this temple whose ownership had been disputed, whether this belonged to the Hindus or Muslims, just as, as a matter of 
property title. Hindus claim it's the birthplace of Lord Ram, that there was a temple there that was destroyed by the Mughal Emperor Babur. And in order for, in a sense, Hindus to kind of redeem their own past, it was important that the site be returned to Hindus. So what Rajiv Gandhi did, which was peculiar, was that he tried to, in a sense, instead of sticking to secular principles, he tried to deepen the politics of competitive religious mobilization. In fact, the joke became that the Congress party is trying to run Muslim nationalism and Hindu nationalism together. <laughs> right. right. It thinks it can be, rather than being the party that can transcend both nationalisms, it thinks it can be the party that can, you know, become both nationalism. And one of the results of that was actually that for a long time, the Muslims also deserted the Congress party hmm. post Rajiv Gandhi. In fact, the Muslims were more likely to vote for a regional party. They were more likely to vote, for example, the caste-based party SP in UP, because Congress lost credibility on the very thing which had made it the party party it is, right? So I think that was a pretty momentous phase and arguably Congress never fully recovered because if, if in a sense you end up betraying your core constituents, uh, social constituents, the lower castes and Muslims, it's going to be hard to recover. Nevertheless, Congress does make it back to power, albeit in a coalition government in 2004. Many people thought against the grain of what was happening in Indian politics. People thought the BJP would win the 2004 election. And for the first time, it did reasonably well. In fact, the six to eight years of uh, Congress rule were the high points of India's economic performance, mm -hmm. almost 8% growth rate. There was an incredible optimism about India, India's place in the world. And very frankly, almost a kind of complacency that India had a kind of new growth path. Hmm. You know, that would propel it to 7-8% growth, which is something that would actually give a new national narrative to India, right? Because one of the, the things the growth did do, I don't want to be economic deterministic about it, but what it does is, in a sense, it satiates nationalist aspiration in a different way. Right, right. We now have a nice and different story to tell about our arrival in the world stage. So unfortunately, I think around 2009, that story came crashing on two fronts. The first was this period of high growth was accompanied by extraordinary degrees of corruption. And in fact, the Congress party started being accused of being a deeply plutocratic party. And in fact, we saw a big anti-corruption social movement, quite significant, which actually delegitimized the Congress party. And, and, and the Congress party's response to this anti-corruption movement almost betrayed a kind of lack of will to fight or lack of will to renew itself. Hmm. So on top of a fragile social base, you're now charged with plutocracy. And then post the 2009 financial crisis, India growth, India's growth rate starts to dip. Now, in retrospect, we can argue that the signs of it were visible earlier. A lot of India's growth was fueled by a kind of credit boom channeled through public sector banks. And so by the time you come to 2009... Congress is being accused of two things. It's being accused of being a plutocratic party. And it's also being accused of a party that's in the grip of a certain kind of policy paralysis. And I think there was something to both charges. I mean, there was almost like in 2009, Congress just simply did not have the will to fight or the will to renew itself. And the BJP then found one trump card. And I think this is important to remember about Modi. So 
there are two facts i think that are important about modi's ideological pedigree one is of course that he's a member of the rss and has always been unflinchingly loyal to the rss ideology and agenda but the second is that you know modi himself was from a backward caste he speaks flawless hindi and in good moments can be a mesmerizing orator and in some senses he came to represent to a lot of indians exactly that kind of self-made vernacular elite person against the plutocratic anglicized out of touch congress party and this is in part why mr modi evoked a lot of personal identification not just amongst elites who identified with him for their own nationalist agenda but actually in popular politics as well which is when he said i am of the people it kind of made a little bit more sense than rahul gandhi saying i am of the people and one of the consistent themes the bjp has run on the we are against dynasty we are against plutocracy so you know in all of these ways the congress party kind of just delegitimized itself yeah that's fascinating i mean i i think that there there is a real parallel between somebody like modi and somebody like recep erdogan because certainly this vernacularization of the elites is happening in many countries that experience rapid economic development and in a country like turkey you had this very secular elite in istanbul often with connections to the west they literally had a different passport from other turks so if you have you know if you are a member of a state bureaucracy or if you're a teacher at certain schools you literally had a different color passport which gave you easier travel to predominantly western countries than the rest of the population and recep erdogan represents an elite that is rising up that comes from the provinces rather than the capital that is much more religious and i think there are real similarities there between erdogan and modi absolutely and i think the second similarity that i would actually point out and i think this is something that i think we should think of in comparative perspective i think much more deeply right is one of the places where liberal elites fail generally is having one access to state power liberal elites became complacent there were no social outreach there were no social movements I and mean, one of the biggest assets the bjp has and hindu nationalism has is that an organization like the rss with sort of tens of thousands of members has for 15 20 25 years even longer being doing this cultural work of outreach i mean opening schools visiting neighborhoods that have not been visited before rss has done a lot of work in frontier tribal areas and in some senses i think one of the interesting like in the us for example even before the rise of right wing populism you actually have the rise of a right wing populist civil society in some ways lots of organization that are doing that cultural work almost independently of the electoral cycle the electoral cycle may come and go but these groups are doing the cultural labor of outreach and one of the impressive things about bjp has to be said is just as an organization and the rss as an organization have incredible street power presence cultural reach commitment so in some senses liberals really what they were left with was the instrument of a political party which had delegitimized itself but once the political party vanished actually did not have a deep enough social organizational base that the right had and the second and i think equally significant thing and and given your you know research in latin america and so it's wonderful to hear from you 
you know, one of the remarkable features is that the right-wing parties, particularly in India, but I think recently more generally globally, actually split much less than the left and the center do. You know, so we always used to assume for the Republican Party, for example, that there are different factions in the Republican Party. There'll be the sort of more traditional conservatives. But it is remarkable how much they've rallied around Trump. Right. The idea is that the Republican Party is a sort of weird alliance between, to put it polemically, sort of theocracy, country club businessmen and libertarians or something. None of which really actually play all that well together, but, but they always manage to somehow cobble together. Exactly. And, and in the end, they don't desert the party in some ways, right? I think the challenge with India in particular, look, I mean, even in the first past the post system, and one of the big advantages the BJP enjoys is that if the opposition vote is split two ways or three ways, all it needs is about 35-36% of the vote to cobble together a large majority. And I think one of the biggest challenges, I think just speaking purely politically, is that the opposition parties have simply found no platform on which to craft an electoral coalition that at least strategically unite effectively against the BJP. So the Indian left is too busy playing its woke battles, too suspicious of the center. And let's not forget, it's the left that deserted the Manmohan Singh center first. The centrist parties are confused about what to think of alliances with caste parties. The Congress party still, I think, has a little bit of a sense of entitlement. I think the BJP is some kind of cultural and electoral usurper in the Indian context. And so even after five years out of power, almost now six years out of power, really have not been able to just muster that ground level organizational energy and the sense of a social movement that actually sustains political parties in lean times. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the remarkable things in virtually every democracy I can think of at the moment, which is the loss of a social basis for the left parties, or at least the substitution of them, uh, where they have actually become parties of economic and educational elites. Um, I mean, even in a country like Britain, 30 or 40 years ago, you could ask about somebody's economic status, and if they didn't have a college or certainly a postgraduate degree, and if they didn't earn particularly much money, they probably voted Labour. Today, the best question is actually cultural rather than economic. But if anything, the economic question has inversed. So that now, if you have a college and a postgraduate degree, you're far more likely to vote Labour than if you uh, only have a high school degree, which is really quite remarkable, right? Now, I do want to ask you about one thing, which is that half an hour ago or so, you made the important distinction between liberalism and democracy. And I think it's, it's obvious from the thing you've been saying and some of the things beyond that that we're not going to go into, that... Modi's government is a threat to the liberal elements of India's liberal democracy, in part because of the way in which it tries to marginalize Muslims, and in part because of the very, very extreme and heavy-handed response to protests, which we haven't really touched on, but which is truly important in that context. Now, help me out on the democratic side, because as you're saying, Modi was elected convincingly in, in elections that are free and fair. I mean, India has certain challenges around elections that it's always had, but there's no reason to believe that these elections were less free and fair than substantively than other elections in India. And clearly Modi has won with a significant advantage in terms of popularity and so on in the country at the moment. But of course, that's also true of other authoritarian populists who came in through relatively free elections, but then started to undermine the liberal element of a political system so much 
that democracy itself was in danger. So what were we talking about Chavez in Venezuela or what were we talking about somebody like Viktor Orban in Hungary? They were certainly freely elected, but once elected, they changed the institutions in such ways that it became very, very difficult to vote them out. Now, how worried are you about that in India? I know it wasn't the case in the last elections a year ago, but do you think that if Modi manages to transform India into a Hindu nation, if he manages to say, I am India, I am the only legitimate interpreter of what the Indian people actually want, if the protests continue to escalate and the extremely uh, violent reaction to the protests continues to escalate, four years from now or, or nine years from now, the democratic element of India's settlement may be in as much danger as its liberal one? Or do you think that that is still sort of an exaggerated fear? Well, I mean, I think, as it's a, when it comes to democracy, one can never be too vigilant, right? I think there are two dimensions to this, right? So one is a process you're already beginning to see in some ways, which is the potential weakening of or destruction of a whole set of independent institutions that are also part of the kind of democratic framework. So I think to most Indians, one of the most shocking things of the last year or so has been the almost complete abdication of the Indian Supreme Court in defending civil liberties and basic rights. I mean, they're not even hearing habeas corpus petitions. And the common understanding of that is in a sense that the Supreme Court judges, or at least the senior judges that decide these kinds of constitutional cases, have by and large aligned themselves with the majoritarian intentions of the government. And this is doubly shocking because, as you know, the Indian Supreme Court had often positioned itself as one of the most powerful Supreme Courts in the world. In fact, many argue that it actually was constantly overstepping its jurisdiction and virtually taken over the governance of the country in significant policy areas. So to go from that kind of a court to a court that's actually not even sticking to basic constitutional essentials. And so one of the effects in some senses of this kind of concentration of power and the BJP's concentration of power, as I said, is at both levels, right? It's not just that it has access to the state. But it now has, in a sense, this whole kind of social movement, almost like a semi-paramilitary organization like the RSS, in a sense behind it, that can, in overt or covert forms, exercise pressure on different independent institutions. That process we are actually already seeing. Hmm. So I often joke, I mean, as, as you know, our common friends and all, we teach constitutional law once in a while. And I honestly cannot walk into an Indian constitutional law class and tell the class with a straight face, I actually know what Indian constitutional law is. Hmm. I thought I knew it two years ago. So I think in terms of, so that process I think is, is already Underway. In part, the reason you are actually seeing street protests, right, is because the Supreme Court failed us. I mean, frankly, the counterfactual is if the court had admitted these petitions, challenged the constitutionality of CA, which it eventually did admit, and had just set a timetable for hearing and said, look, you know, the hearings are on probably the poor protests would have sort of died down. I and mean, that's how India often negotiated conflict because these institutions provided a check and balance, a kind of forum. Instead, what, this, what the Chief Justice of India did was, he said, I'm not going to hear the case until the protests die out, which is 
sort of kind of putting the cart before the horse in some ways, right? It's also a bizarre way for the judiciary to sort of explicitly make its actions dependent on actions in the social sphere. I mean, it's a, it's a very odd... Exactly, right? Um, when the internet was shut down in Kashmir, petitions challenging that shutdown, again, for three months, no hearing, finally a hearing, and uh, an order that pretty much lets the government off the hook. So that process, we are actually already significantly beginning to see the media, particularly television media. I think in print media, you can still in pockets get away with things, partly because possibly the government thinks either they are inconsequential or it's useful to have a few lightning rods against Mm. which to mobilize yourself. But large chunks of television media are even though they are in private hands, are actually controlled through overt and covert pressure of state power, threats of tax raids, tax inquiries, those kinds of things. I mean, you must have seen yesterday, Jeff Bezos is in India and the spokesman of the BJP foreign policy cell pretty much gave a kind of open threat to Jeff Bezos that, you know, Amazon would not be allowed to run in India unless the owner of the Washington Post did something about the biased reporting in Washington Post. Right, right. right? Uh, I mean, pretty much as close to, you could, you, you, you know, you could, you could say, now, there might be other independent reasons for not, for reg- wanting to regulate Amazon in India, but I think the government ministers have made it pretty much clear that this is a quid pro quo for the kinds of editorial line and articles that the Washington Post has been carried, which the Indian government thinks are stridently anti-government. Right. 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 Uh, so imagine if you're a media house in India, what your predicament is. So in that sense, you know, in terms of independent opinion formation, the BJP has also, and again, iron- ironically, for a party that came to power promising that it would fight plutocracy, it actually created a most potent legal instrument that actually favors it in party political funding, namely the government can float these electoral bonds and you don't have to reveal the name of which entity buys these electoral bonds, right? So for a particular party. And obviously, only the party in power, I mean, technically only the Reserve Bank of India has to know who's actually bought these bonds, mm-hmm. right? But significant chunk of that funding, I think far in proportion to the votes that BJP gets, is actually going to the BJP. Interesting. So one way of putting this, right, is that dictatorship means there's no democratic competition at all. A perfect democracy, which perhaps exists in no country, is a perfectly uh, even playing field between the government and the opposition. And what characterizes significantly challenged democracies, or as some people like Steve Levitsky call them, competitive authoritarian regimes, it's a deeply uneven playing field. And, and everything you're outlining means that India is becoming a significantly more uneven playing field than it used to be in the past, where perhaps in theory it's possible for the opposition to win, but actually the capture of state institutions makes it very hard in practice. Yes, I mean, it is certainly making it harder to mobilize public opinion. And that's where, again, these protests have been really significant because I think, and frankly, taken the government by surprise because... Under extreme odds, they actually tried to invent a new grammar of protest, of actually signifying some way of letting the people know that not everybody agrees uh, with the government. I mean, as you know, Tokpil said famously about public opinion, right, that it's self-fulfilling, that if a lot of people think that a lot of other people are for a particular position, they might actually change their views. And in a democracy where media is actually 
tightly controlled, the playing field is quite uneven, you actually need these moments to remind people that not everybody thinks alike. And I think one of the significant things about these protests, which makes us a little bit hopeful, is that they've certainly broken the pall of fear. I've you know, lived in Delhi since 2001 and then finally since 2005, never experienced an atmosphere where so many privileged, wealthy, powerful, well-connected people would say, uh, these are my opinions in private, but I, I obviously will say the opposite in public. Whenever that gap grows as wide as it was growing in India, you could actually worry. And these are people with you know, incredible crime. You'd say, look, if you are fearful, you know, think of the ordinary frontline journalist trying to fight a thuggish government uh, in the state of Uttar Pradesh, right, who can simply be locked up. And I think what these protests have done, and particularly the two groups that have spearheaded them, which is actually women, particularly Muslim women, and the students, because the epicenter of many of these protests has been universities in India, and it's now spread to at least 300 100 universities, is they've actually demonstrated that young people are less afraid to speak out than their elders. And I think in a way, it's also actually beginning to have a little bit of effect at the margins on these other independent institutions. I think, I think there is some evidence, for example, that high court judges are actually now beginning to think, hang on, this is not all a one-way street. We should not assume that the BJP is going to be in power forever or that its ideology is unchallenged. Or, you know, that you may still have the protection of public opinion if you give the right decision, even if the government doesn't like it. So I think one of the things India, as you know, has always had, I mean, from Gandhi's days to the emergency, is actually a pretty vibrant tradition of civil protest. And after a long time, frankly, we are seeing that reawaken on a national scale. It's still a long ways to go. The state has incredible power. Politically, the opposition parties itself are not united. And one of the striking features of these protests is that the political parties have been nowhere in the background. These protests don't have obvious leaders, like many protests in the last four or five years. And in fact, Politicians are waiting to see how this unfolds rather than rather than leading this protest. So I think there's a little bit of ground of optimism that, you know, one of others in India's other great inheritance, which is a tradition of civic protest. And this is a kind of modern satyagraha in some senses. These protesters are draped in images of Gandhi and Ambedkar. Actually, one of the most moving civic sites I've seen in India is literally tens of thousands of people reading the preamble of the constitution together. Muslims carrying the national flag explicitly. So I think there is a little bit of that pushback that perhaps enough is enough. But as you know from other contexts, right, in the short run that this can only exacerbate conflict, it might actually consolidate the right backlash as it sees the narrative slipping away. So I think Indian democracy is in for a long haul for the purposes of repair. But compared to six months ago, there's a glimmer of hope that some of these protests will at least make a dent in the power structure. This is interesting. It makes me think that there's two different kinds of protests against populist regimes. And I hadn't quite thought that before, actually. So I'm formulating it on the spot, but it seems very plausible to me. So I think the first kind of protest is everybody who disliked the regime anyway finally coming out into the streets and mobilizing against it. Now, I think that's very important precisely because 
populists claim that they alone represent the people and that there isn't any real legitimate disagreement. And when you have hundreds of thousands of people in the street, that undermines that claim very powerfully. And it can break that pall of silence, as we were saying, in environments where things are becoming increasingly repressive. But I have to say that I think that those kinds of protests have virtually always failed. So whether it is the Polish opposition that had big marches in the last few years, whether it's the Women's March in the United States, whether it is the people trying to rescue Central European University in Budapest, none of that ended up swaying electoral majorities and none of that ended up reversing this decline of political institutions, actually. Then I think there's a second kind of protest. And the second kind of protest is when a government has delegitimized itself so thoroughly, either because of economic mismanagement in many cases, or because it has so evidently undermined the promise of greater democracy, of greater representation, that some of its core constituency starts to abandon ship. So you're seeing that obviously in Venezuela, and you saw that in Bolivia with protests. You saw it in some ways in Turkey when a cancelled municipal elections in Istanbul moved a lot of people to the opposition in the rerun because they said, hang on a second, this is evidently an attack on democracy. So I guess my question is, do you see signs that this is the latter or is it the former? Because if it is sort of all the obvious people who've always opposed the government, my fear is that it is still necessary and it's still hopeful, but 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 it wouldn't make me think that this will turn into a deep problem for the government. I think it would only be at the point at which some of the former constituents of a government are trying to grow skeptical of it, that it would give me a lot of hope. I actually agree with you. I mean, I think that's a the distinction you made is just a very helpful one. And I actually think it is the former at the moment, which is to say that it is providing a focal point for many different opponents of the regime to express themselves. I wouldn't say it's inconsequential for that reason. As I said, I think it is It is already beginning to, for example, at the margins change or arrest the capitulation of independent institutions. At the very least, it's getting the media to pause a little bit more in terms of what it represents public opinion to be. It has on the particular issue of the CAA, the Citizenship Amendment Act, at least provoked resistance from some state governments and at least the Supreme Court will adjudicate the matter if it does adjudicate the matter under conditions where it cannot just assume that the majority view is the view of the country. But I actually agree with you sort of entirely. I mean, I, I think even from India's own history in in, in 19. 77, the big movement against the emergency. I mean, the fact of the matter is the state did came down hard with repression. And unless the state and the elite that rules it, the party elite, unless that splits or implodes, they have enough staying power to ride these protests out, to wear them down in the best case scenario, in the worst case scenario, just outright repress them. I think in India, there's also one more danger or one more factor that may prevent these protests from moving from the type one that you described to type two, where they actually have significant electoral and political consequences. Again, I think at the margins, they're beginning to, because I think you are beginning to see at least some of the other opposition parties losing fewer adherents. I mean, I think the political space is marginally opening up. Local election results, particularly in the state of Maharashtra and 
hopefully in this in delhi in in a month's time will perhaps be at least another indication of some form of resistance but here's my big worry apart from the worry that you mentioned which is that okay fine these are civil society protests but how do they actually translate into meaningful electoral and political change and my big worry is this which is the bjp's narrative around these protests is that these are protests that are either being organized by muslims or being instigated by muslims so what it's trying to do is in a sense convert it into a hindu muslim issue and its narrative is look i mean you know these are people who are protesting against giving hindu refugees citizenship i mean you know come on how anti hindu is that and it's trying to portray this as this kind of foolhardy alliance between what it calls liberal idiots and muslims and sometimes much more alarmingly islamo fascists although there's been no sign in any of these protests of violence being instigated by protesters and in the state of up what it did was it gave the state an excuse to unleash its authoritarian arsenal and target muslims even more and to me these protests are important less for their electoral consequences which will unfold in in due course but i think it was important for providing a platform to indian muslims and other besieged minorities a way of publicly expressing the signal that actually large numbers of indians stand with india's constitutional principles right. right because the consequence of that total political marginalization where you are being shut out of the electoral arena you can't be represented in civil society but even social movements don't sort of touch you i think the consequences of that could have been devastating in the kinds of marginalization that produced but that very feature that makes this particular moment i think interesting productive ray of hope also as i said contains that seed of danger that the government will try and use this moment perhaps to also kind of consolidate its hindutva anti minority base and they're openly running this narrative look we told you the minorities have veto over everything in this country and see here they come here they go again right right yeah i think one of the deep problems that opponents of populists often have is that we don't think carefully enough about how things will be spun and read by the opposing side and that often makes us easy prey to those narratives now i think some of the things you were saying about these protests are actually great ways of opposing that so reciting the constitution together is a very clear way of showing that this is not communitarian and so on but i think it's always amazing how surprised us in quotation marks on the good side of this battle uh, are by how our opponents sort of spin things and it's amazing that even years into this kind of battle that keeps happening and it keeps happening in india it keeps happening in the united states and so on let me ask you a very last question and ask you uh, it's an unfair question and it's an even more unfair question to expect a very quick answer to but i will impose those things on you you know when the history of india is written let's say 50 or 100 years from now is modi sort of one very important chapter in the way that perhaps the emergency is going to be one very important chapter or is it sort of the beginning of part 2 and part 3 of the book if that makes sense i mean is this likely to be a very scary interlude but in a way the country will revert to some of its founding traditions or do you think you will succeed in a way or in refounding the country 
I would like to think that I think it is a very scary interlude. And I think I say this for this reason, which is to say that if Modi's project succeeds, it will not be that there will be India Chapter 2 or the Second Republic or the Third Republic, as they like to call it, different from the Congress Republic. It is also very likely that there may not be any India because I think one thing we underestimate about India is that nationhood and democracy have gone together. That one of the things that helped India remain a nation against all the odds was the fact that it was stitched together through democratic negotiation. And if Indian history is any guide, by the way, in the long range, not just in the kind of history of democracies in the last sort of 70 years, but I think if you look at kind of older empires, whenever any centralized authority has tried to excessively centralize or repress, it has actually failed and disintegrated. State subverting secessionism in India is almost always a product of central authoritarianism. It's almost never a product of democratic incorporation. And despite all the things we talk about, I think that underlying logic, I think, is still powerful. And one of the reasons that makes this fraught or makes this such a dark interlude is that, you know, you want to tell Mr. Modi and the BJP, look, don't experiment with that thought that somehow you think Indian nationhood can survive or India's continuity can survive in this form if it is not a functioning democracy in some ways. Pratap, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.